I'm so excited for this new series we're starting today called You Asked For It. You Asked For It. All right, that's the series. And what's cool about this series is that our middle school, high school students up in the balcony, big shout out to the students that I can now see. We have lights this service. That's good. Uh, They're going to be with us this whole series because I want our youth to know the church wants your questions. We want to take your questions to God's Word and find out what it says because how many have wrestled with questions about faith, God, life, whatever, and you've been afraid to bring them to church because maybe when you were a young kid or maybe you were a high school student, you asked your pastor a question at church or asked your teacher and they said, son, we don't talk about that stuff here. Well, that's not us. We want to be people who go to the Word of God for relevant answers, real answers to issues we currently face in our life and in our faith. So thanks for coming. Maybe you've got some people you love and care about who are a bit skeptic about the Christian faith or about some of these topics we're talking about. It's on you to bring them, all right? We're going to address some questions over these next several weeks generally about the Christian faith, uh, about current cultural issues that we're facing in our society, and we're going to tackle them with the Word of God. So bring them, all right? Bring them, because we have some questions we want to answer. Because it's not like that fishing trip I once heard about. There was a father-son. They went fishing. It was a beautiful scenery out in God's creation, and the, the little boy was sitting in the boat, and as he was looking all around, he all of a sudden became very curious about the world around him. And so he looked at his father, and he said, Dad, how does this boat float? And the father said, Son, I, I don't... I don't know. A little bit later, the boy was looking around, and he saw some fish, and he's like, hey, Dad, how do these fish breathe underwater? Dad says, I don't likely know. A little bit later, the boy's looking up at the sky and watching the birds, and he says, Dad, why is the sky blue? Dad says, you know, I, I, I don't likely know. Well, afraid the boy was maybe frustrating his dad with all these questions. He said, Dad, do you mind if I ask you these questions? And dad said, of course not, son. How are you ever going to learn if you don't ask questions? <laughs> so as you bring your questions here, I'm not going to stand here and say, I don't likely know. All right? We're going to go to God's Word. We're going to wrestle with these questions. We've already had some submitted, and when they come in, and as they, as they continue to come in, we're going to just kind of categorize these by some groups that make sense to address Um, But if you haven't yet submitted a question and you want to, there's a lot of ways you can do that. One of those is right in your bulletin today. There is a form that just has a big white bubble. You can write your questions right in there, and you can submit those in the box right there by the main doors as you leave. Just slide them in there, um, and you can leave those questions uh, with me, and, and we'll begin to research and tackle those. You can also, if you prefer to do this, you can text your questions to the number on the screen. Um, and uh, we'll respond to those in the Sunday morning messages. You can also send us an email, info at albanync.org, and we will get that into our uh, hopper of things to address, or you can interact with us on social media. We're out there in Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Uh, and so if you use those mediums of social media, just look up Albany Neighborhood Church, and uh, you can direct message or messenger us a question, and we will get that into our stuff to deal with as well. Um, I want to give a disclaimer on this series, and the disclaimer is this. We have a lot of questions about a lot of important things, and what I'm going to do is go to Scripture and look for what the Bible says specifically about that. And if the Bible says something specifically, I will bring that out in in the questions that are there. But there are times your question is not specifically addressed in Scripture verbatim. And what I will be doing then is I will take principles of Scripture, truths that we see applied in Scripture, and apply them to the question. So there may not be a verse that says, thus saith the Lord about this. But there are principles in Scripture we can use to help navigate our questions. So here's my disclaimer. I am not infallible, okay? I'm human. I believe the Word of God is infallible. I believe what God has declared and shown us in Scripture is true and without error. So we will go to Scripture, and I study pretty hard to make sure that we're answering these questions rightly, okay? But here's the thing. You might disagree with me, and that's okay. I'm bringing to you my interpretation of what I see in Scripture 
as I bring these before the Lord and with the Bible open and, and pray through those things and see what Scripture says, I consult some reliable scholars that I believe have a faith in line with what we as a church body have embraced to be true. Um, and so just know I'm not infallible. If you disagree, you are totally, this is America, you can totally disagree with me if you want to, that's fine. I'm just bringing you what I believe prospectively from Scripture as I've prayed through and wrestled through these, okay? So that's my disclaimer. What we're going to do is we're going to tackle today questions that relate to the end of life. A lot of people, when it comes to life after now, have questions about that, all right? And so we're going to tackle end-of-life questions today. And somewhere I have my notes because I'm not that good. <laughs> i got to make sure I keep on track with my notes. End-of-life. And, and what we're going to do is we're going to just post the question on the screen so you see it. And, of course, by the way, please interact with us, uh, this message, using your smart devices. If you have a smart device and you go to albanync.org using your web browser on your smart device and you go to message notes... All of our notes are going to be in a blog titled Today's Message. And if you use the website, all the scripture verses are hyperlinked. You just got to touch them and it pops up on a window that shows you the scripture. All right? So that's if you're using your web browser. If you're using the church app for whatever reason, they haven't enabled that feature in the church app where the notes are. I wish they'd fix that, but they, they haven't. You can also use the YouVersion Bible app if you've downloaded that very popular YouVersion Bible app. If you go to Menu, Events, You'll find Neighborhood Church is one of the live events right now with all of our notes and the message scripture passages involved in it. But here's the first question. Do we go to heaven right away when we die? And if not, where does our spirit go? This is a great question, and I want to just throw a little story I I once heard about about this idea of heaven. A pastor was teaching the preschool class, some fours and five-year-olds, and he was talking about loving Jesus and going to heaven. And so at the end of the, of the talk, he, he asked the kids, where do you want to go? Heaven, shouted out Susie. And he says, and what do you have to be to get there? And Bobby said, six feet under. <laughs> now, we'll talk about six feet under here in a moment, but heaven, great topic to talk about. And here's what I have discovered in Scripture and what I believe. I I believe that a person who has trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior, according to what the Bible talks about, believing who Jesus is, believing that He was the Son of God who died for our sins, confessing our need of a Savior, asking Him to forgive us. That's that whole process of what we call being born again. I believe that a person who is a born-again believer in Jesus Christ, at the moment they die, they are immediately in the presence of God. Now, what most people can't agree on is what that looks like. Most everybody agrees that we are immediately in the presence of God, but in what form are we in, right? So let's take a look for a minute at Scripture and first just kind of practically what happens, okay? I've been with people who have passed from this life into eternity. I've been at bedsides of several people who have died. And you notice something immediately change upon the death of that person. The lifelessness leaves. Um, And now there is a body laying before you. That body is cared for by a funeral home, dealt with whatever that person's wishes were for being dealt with, and placed into the ground. But there is a part of us that is eternal. And it is that part of us that leaves the human body upon death. And it's that part of us that Solomon says in Ecclesiastes that God has set eternity in the human heart. So there's a part of us that right now is eternal. And that soul, that spirit of who we are, the real person behind who we are, leaves the human body upon death. And that is what immediately is in the presence of Jesus. Now, what that looks like, I can't tell you right now. Because we're still waiting for the glorified bodies that Jesus has talked about. And I'll get clearer on that here in a moment, okay? But there is some kind of a soul Spirit being that we are immediately in the presence of Jesus. How do I know that? Jesus was hanging on a cross. There was a thief on each side. And one of the thieves believed who Jesus was. And he said, when you enter your kingdom, will you remember me? And Jesus said in Luke, this isn't on the screen for you, but in Luke 23, 43, he says, I tell you the truth today. Today, you will be with me in paradise. Paradise. 
today. Now, why could Jesus say that? Because he was in that moment dying on a cross for the sins of all mankind. And that sinner who repented and trusted Jesus would today be with him in paradise. Now, when Jesus talked about paradise, there is this sense that scripturally there was, and he speaks about it in a different parable about this place we immediately go to when we die. I wish we could have snapshots of what that looks like. You know, we just don't know. But immediately today, you'll be with me. Paul picks that up in Philippians chapter 121 when he says this, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. In other words, dying is good because I'm going to get to be with Jesus. If I go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor. So as long as it gives me breath, I'm going to work for him. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better. So the whole point is I'm either here in my body or I'm with Christ. There is no soul sleep. There is no other place or condition. I'm either in my body or I'm with Jesus. Now, this is for born-again believers, okay? I want to make sure we're wrapping this around the fact that this promise is for those who have confessed Christ. What it looks like for those who have not confessed Christ as Savior is a place of torment. What that is like right now, I don't know. It's a place of suffering. Again, in the parable of Lazarus and the rich man, Jesus talks about that. There's an Abraham's bosom and a place of suffering. Um, and we don't have the time to really get into that today. We will be addressing in the future, how can a loving God send people to hell? We will get to that question in this series. Also in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 6, Paul says this, Therefore, we're always confident and know that as long as we're at home in the body, we're away from the Lord. So you get the idea that it's one or the other. For we live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and we prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. You see this longing in Paul, I want to be with Jesus. I remember being with Joseph Novak in his last few uh, moments and just wanting so much to be with Jesus. And that's what Paul felt. It's better. Why? Because we have this assurance that we're either here now or we're with him for eternity. Then there's this, this, there's this event that Paul speaks to in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 where he talks about the rapture of the church. This is that moment, youth, when Jesus promised, I'm going to come back. He left, he, took, he was taken up into heaven in the sight of his disciples, and he was whisked away from them. But the angel said, don't worry, he's going to come back the same way he came. He hasn't done that yet. So in case you thought you've missed the rapture, and now you're in the, you're the star of a movie called Left Behind, no, you're not. He hasn't come back yet, but he promises that he is. Now look at how Paul talks about this, all right? He says, brothers and sisters, this is 1 Thessalonians 4.13, do, I, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death. That's talking about those who have died, okay, that were Christians. So that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. In other words, as believers, we're going to feel a sting of, of losing somebody, but we don't have to grieve as those who have no hope because our loved one who's trusted in Jesus is with Jesus, and we'll see them again someday. Verse 14, for we believe that Jesus died and rose again, foundational truth. That is the, that is the crux of the Christian faith, right? Died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. You hear what he's saying? They have left their bodies. They have died. They're with Jesus, and they will come with Jesus on this day. Here's where it gets confusing. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive who are left until the coming of the Lord will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. So in other words, those who have already died will experience this new resurrected body talked about in 1 Corinthians 15. Okay? After that, verse 17. We who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage. His point is, don't let this be a Debbie Downer. Encourage one another with these words. The truth is, we die, we go to be with Jesus immediately. There is no middle ground. If we died and we're not following Jesus, we go immediately to another place. And the Lord is going to deal with the sin issue in the hearts of unrepentant people. And, the, and we'll talk, like I said, in a different, a different day about this point. So yes, the answer is you immediately go to be with Jesus. There's no in-between space. There's no purgatory. You are either with him 
or without him. Okay? Question number two. Are there different rewards for people in heaven for their life on earth? Great question. First, we need to establish that heaven is a place for those who have trusted Jesus for their salvation. John 3.16 tells us what? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting or eternal life. He furthers that conversation in John 14.6 when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one. Okay, let me just see what the, I'll tell you what the Greek means. Nobody comes to the Father except through Christ. There is no other way. So we understand that our salvation is through Jesus Christ, the gift of the Father on the cross. All right? Titus 3, Paul says it this way, verse 4. But when the kindness and love of our God appeared, our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of righteous things that we had done, but because of His mercy, He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified, that's that legal term that means I'm right with God, okay? Having been justified by His grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. So, the point I'm trying to make here, and this is where I'm building a case for you here. The point is, we don't get saved by our works. We're saved by our faith in Christ Jesus, and that is our eternal life. Now, as Christians, we believe that we're saved solely on the grace of God, that God sets us apart for salvation based on nothing we have done, not by works of righteousness that we have done. That's what it says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourself. This is the gift of God, not by works, so no one can boast. So when we talk about rewards in heaven, we have to understand the only way we get there is not by works. You can't work your way. It's not Jesus plus doing good that gets me to heaven. And if you grew up in a faith tradition that says Jesus is good, but he's not enough, that is a lie. He is the only way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Jesus, and it's only the gift of God that we receive with our free will. I believe in you, Jesus, and we trust him. Now, as an authentic follower of Jesus, we will not be judged according to our sins. Let me say this again. As authentic followers of Jesus, we will not be judged according to our sins because our sin was dealt with in Jesus. He took the judgment for our sins. That's why Romans 8, Paul can say this, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Okay? So when we stand as believers before God, we're not judged according to our sin because the sin was dealt with. If we were judged according to our sin, then what Jesus did wasn't enough. He took our judgment so we could be made just. And we stand before God, we're not judged based upon our sins. If you're outside of a relationship with the atoning work of Christ on the cross and you've not confessed and repented of your sin, you've not made him your Lord and Savior, you are judged according to your sins. And according to your sins, you will spend eternity away, whatever the form that looks like, away from the life of God. All right? So, let's come back to the question then. Then, then if we don't work for our salvation, if we don't earn it based on works, then what's this whole thing about rewards in heaven? All right? While we're not saved for our, by our good works, James deals with an issue, and I don't have the verse for you, but you just read the whole letter that James writes. It talks about this. He says that basically faith, that means that confession of faith in Christ without works is dead. So there is a sense that because we're saved, something within us should desire to follow and serve God and carry out his mission, that we should do something with the knowledge of Christ as our Lord and Savior, that we should act upon that in how we live. And Jesus talks about that, receiving a ward in heaven based upon how we did, did here on earth. Look at Matthew 16, 27. For the Son of Man is going to come in His Father's glory. We just heard about that in Thessalonians, right? With His angels. And then He will reward each person according to what they have done. 
Paul also agrees with this in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 11. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. The point is, we start there. None of us are going to get there without this foundation of Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. That's the foundation. We're not saved by our works. The foundation is laid in Christ. But look at what he says. But if anyone builds on this foundation, that means there's some things that we can do in life. We're saved. Now we're going to build on that foundation of salvation. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring light to it. It will be revealed with fire, and fire will test the quality of each person's work. And if what has been built survives, that means, in other words, if you gave your life To Jesus, and you served him in enduring ways, carrying out his mission, letting letting people know about who Jesus is, serving him and and his plan in our our community and in your location of the world. These are costly things that we're building upon. That would be the gold, silver, costly stones, okay? Then he says that it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. There's something there. But if it is burned up, that means there was nothing of any enduring quality. If it's burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, saved even though as one escaping through the flames. Let me explain what that means. There are people who just get on this side of salvation and do nothing. They do nothing. Thank you, Jesus, that I'm saved but they don't step anywhere into the mission and purpose of God for their life. They will have nothing to account for except their salvation in heaven. That means when their work is tested, Jesus, I did nothing for you. But thanks for your salvation. I don't know about you, I don't want to stand before him as the one who had this great talent and I buried it. Okay? But he says, for those who have built upon that foundation with costly, enduring things. That means serving, sacrificing yourself to serve the kingdom of God. That doesn't mean you got to be a missionary, a pastor, or evangelist. That just means using your resources now to advance his work right here because we are all called to do the will of God where we live. When I stand before him, I'll give an account of what I have done, okay? 2 Corinthians 5, 9. So we make it our goal to please him, Paul says. Whether we are at home in the body or away from it, again, he kind of touches on that, we're one or the other. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. So there is this sense of varying reward according to how we have lived. Now, this isn't like varying levels of heaven. Okay, there's other faith traditions that hold this idea that You know, you can get your own planet and populate your own planet based on what you've done here on this world. I don't buy that. But I do believe that whatever I receive, I'm going to give back to him in worship. Uh, Because this is not my works, it's for his glory. But there is a sense there will be a rewarding based on how we do. Why is that important? Because too many Christians sit on it and do nothing with their salvation. Nothing. He's calling us to serve and he will honor and reward those who do. Question that is next. What does the Bible say about being cremated instead of being buried? Will I go to heaven if I'm cremated? This is one of those the Bible doesn't specifically address. There's no verse that says, thus saith the Lord, do not be cremated. But I know some of you are sweating right now about this because you've made arrangements down at the funeral home. All right? And you're kind of going, oh boy, where's this going to go? Do I need to go down to the funeral home today and make change of plans? So, I did, so hear me here, Okay. Since the Bible does not specifically answer this, we're going to look at this principally. Okay, we're going to look at this kind of from a theological basis of what Scripture has revealed. Now, where does the where does the angst come from? Okay, so here's the point: throughout church history, people have believed that fire is a sign of judgment, and so uh, it's a sign of God's judgment. Okay, we just talked about it. Your, your works will be tested by fire, it says in the Bible. So we have this sense that fire is bad. It's a sense of judgment. Let me show you. Leviticus chapter 20, verse 14. If a man marries both a woman and her mother, it is wicked. Both he and they must be burned in the fire. 
okay, so that no wickedness will be among you. So here's the sense of this is bad. Here's the result. In Numbers chapter 11, verse 1, this happened. Now the people complained about their hardship in the hearing of the Lord. This was the Israelites complaining against God in the wilderness, right? And when he heard them, his anger was aroused. Then fire from the Lord burned among them and consumed some of the outskirts of the camp. So this whole idea is there's, there's an equivalence of judgment of God with fire. So if you submit your body to cremation, which you th- cremation means your body is burned. And what doesn't burn, is, <laughs> I don't want to gross anybody up for lunch, but what isn't burned gets ground up into dust pieces. And the whole thing is put together into a, some kind of receptacle. That's what cremation is. The body is burned. So this idea of cremation being bad comes from the sense that burning is bad. But here's my question to challenge your thinking on this. What about the Christian martyrs who died when they were placed onto a, a post and set fire to light Nero's gardens? And that was his pr- preference of lamp. I don't know if I'd go that route at all. But he burnt Christians to light his gardens. What happens to those Christians who were burned? Well, they spend eternity in hell because they were burned. Their body will be consumed. Will, will they be? What about our, our Christian military men and women who've served over, overseas in war? And because of the nature of their service to our country and their faith in God that they had of their own personal merit, they died in war, and that dealt with their body being completely demolished. Will they go to hell? These are questions that we have to ask as we talk about cremation. So here's now where we kind of understand some some things biblically. I want you to go back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 19. It says this. This is when Adam and Eve, by the way, have already been created from the dust of the earth. Remember, God formed Adam out of clay and breathed into him. They chose to use their free will God gave them to sin against God. So now there are sinful uh, people, sinful natures in them, and God is talking to them about the curse of their sin. And so he says to Adam, by the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground. From it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. So here's the thing about your body. All of us, unless the Lord comes, is going to die. For those whose bodies are simply buried you will still decompose, even if you're embalmed. It slows down decomposition, but you will still decompose, which means your body breaks down. All those cells die. There's no life-giving substance. Everything returns to dust, including over years bones. Okay? Now, the reason the Jewish people kept bones in ossuaries is because they believed that was critical for the resurrection to have those bones. That was their belief system about the way they viewed the afterlife. Now, let me help you understand something. A human body will return to dust over time. Cremation speeds the process up, but yet turns to dust. So the concern people have is, well, then how's God going to reconstitute us, right? I mean, okay, let me just tell you this. Let me just address that, that issue. God doesn't need anything of our current body for our resurrected body. And I'm so glad. I'm so glad. He doesn't need my big toe to bring back the entire resurrected body. He doesn't need my spleen, my appendix, which is good because I don't even have it. it's, it's, It's gone. He doesn't need any of that. He's God. All right? So he can take whatever and do whatever he wants with it. So cremation, I don't believe you're going to go to hell if you're cremated. So take a deep, deep sigh of relief and, and pursue with your plans as, 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 as necessary. I don't believe that is critical. God is God. He can handle whatever pieces, if he even needs them, which I don't think he does, for a resurrected body. Which some of you are going, well, good, because I wanted mine scattered over the ocean. <laughs> and I know God's pretty good, but that's like a really big space to find all the pieces. For those of you who saw the movie Iron Giant, any of our students see Iron Giant? He falls apart and all those pieces crawl back together and he reformulates. That's not us, okay? Next question, if you have accepted Jesus as your Savior and love God with all of your heart but live a worldly life, would you still go to heaven? Now, I think in this question, there's something we have to address that's just an error in thinking, okay? 
Because this question, in, in the way we think about this question, assumes that you can both love God with all of your heart and live worldly. So that in itself is kind of a contradiction that John talks about in 1 John chapter 2, verse 3. We know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. The, the man who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But if anyone obeys his word, God's love is truly made complete in him. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. So if we claim that we love God as he's commanded us with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and yet live according to the world's standards, then we're not really loving God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. He goes on in 1 John chapter 2, 15 to say it this way, do not love the world or anything in the world. In other words, don't set your affections here in living according to your flesh. Now, I enjoy a good ribeye. That's not what he's saying. But if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. In other words, you can't serve two masters. You love the one or you hate the other or you despise the one and love the other. That's the whole point, okay? You can't have the love of the world and love the Father in you at the same time as far as the allegiance of your heart. For everything in the world, the cravings of the sinful man, the lust of his eyes, the boasting of what he has done, comes not from the Father but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. What this question really addresses is this issue we call eternal security. If I went to the altar one time back in 1970 and prayed a prayer and invited Jesus to be my Lord and Savior, and I got up from that altar and went and continued living life however I blank well pleased, will I go to heaven? My personal belief is no, you won't. Because whatever that was, was not fulfilled in the way you lived. I believe that if I love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, I am not going to willingly continue to live contrary to his will. Because if he has my heart, my mind, my soul, my strength, then he's got all of me. And I'm going to want to... Now, does that mean I'm going to be perfect? Absolutely not, friends. I sin just like you sin. We're under the grace of God. We still make mistakes. That's not what I'm talking about. It's not a tightrope walk. We'll get there in a moment as we talk about something else. But I believe that I need to be moving toward Christ-likeness and desiring to serve him. Paul says to work out our salvation, okay? There's this sense of we need to continue. That doesn't mean we earn it, but once we're saved, we keep moving in that direction. Jesus calls us to this kind of all-in sort of life, and that's what Matthew 16 says. The bottom line is he says, if anyone's going to come after me, he must deny himself. That means you stop living for yourself. Take up the cross and follow me. Okay, that's basically the whole point behind what Jesus made. It's an all-in lifestyle. Now, he knows that we're going to be maybe two steps forward, one step back sometimes in our walk with him, but it's moving forward in Christ-likeness. So the issue here is be very careful that you think you said a prayer once and now can live however you want to and make it to heaven. I believe that our faith action backs our faith testimony doesn't earn my salvation, but I sure better honor him in the way that I live if he truly is my Lord and Savior, okay? Matthew 7 talks more about that, and I don't have time to go there because I want to get to this next question, but basically, he talks about by your fruit, you'll know them. So if you say you're a good tree, but you keep producing bad fruit, that doesn't happen. Good trees only produce good fruit. Bad trees produce bad fruit. By your fruit, you will know them. So you got somebody who's an American going to heaven because they're an American? No, they're not. Okay? They go to heaven because of Jesus, and then we live according to his principles for our life. All right? That may sound legalistic. That's not my point. My point is, why would I want to not love him with all my heart and back up that with my actions? Let me give you an example. Let's say that I say I love my wife with all my heart. I do, by the way. <laughs> that part is true. So I love my wife with all of my heart. But let's say I keep having affairs, just with random people. Oh, but honey, I love you. But I have an affair, I have an affair, I have an affair, I have an affair. Is that backing what I'm committing with my heart? No, not at all. But that's what we do all the time. We say we love Jesus, but we go have affairs all the time. See, that covenant relationship doesn't work. Okay? So why would I do that spiritually when it comes to following Jesus? Love him with all my heart and then go live like I want to. 
and transgress his will for my life. Okay, good point. So that, there's that. Question, next one. For those who are in a second marriage, what will God say to us regarding the situation? Who will we be one with in the kingdom? So some of you, I, I just want to address this, this briefly because some of you have had divorce and, and I'm not here to judge you or criticize you for your divorce, but I want to tell you what the Bible says about divorce because I think sometimes we become culturally um, soft on this issue and I believe the Bible is very clear, okay? And I'm not here to cast stones. I'm here to say this is what the Word of God says about divorce. Malachi uh, 2.16 says it this way. God says, I hate divorce, this is the Word of God, okay? Matthew 5, Jesus talks about divorce in his great Sermon on the Mount, and he basically says that if you divorce somebody outside of the scope of marital unfaithfulness, you commit adultery. You remarry that person, you commit adultery with that person, okay? So there is a biblical truth we have to pay attention to. I understand the situations around divorce. I'm not here to say anything. I understand it's complex. I get that. All I'm saying is this is what the Bible says concerning the issue of divorce. God would rather not see this happen. The only reason it was allowed, Jesus said, by Moses was because of the hardness of people's hearts. We're stubborn. And because of that, we want to have our way. And so we do stupid stuff against our wife or our husband or we just... Don't work on that relationship, and we think that's an option, okay? Biblically speaking, God is about death till we part, okay? And there's a reason why it says, till death do we part. This brings us to the next phase of the question. So, let's say I've had multiple marriages. Who am I going to be with for eternity in heaven? Who's going to be my soulmate, which I really don't believe in? So, I'm just going to tell you right now, I don't believe in that concept. Um, I believe there is somebody God wants you to marry, but I just, I just don't believe in the whole soulmate kind of deal. I have one soulmate. His name is Jesus, okay? Um, but, so it brings us to this question, what about heaven and what about marriage? Jesus actually takes this on in Scripture. So let me bring it to you. Uh, Mark chapter 12, verse 18. He's talking to the Sadducees. They're sad, you see, because they don't believe in the resurrection. Um, that's why they're called the Sadducees. <laughs> I'm a kid's pastor at heart. They'll still come out, all right? So teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now that was an Old Testament thing, all right? Now there were seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow, but he also died leaving no children. It was the same with the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died too. At the resurrection, whose wife will she be since the seven were married to her? Jesus replied, are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God? When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like angels in heaven. Now, notice what he says. You're not going to become the angel who has the wings, sits on the cloud, and plays the harps. That's not happening for any of you. Why? Angels were a created being by God for a very specific purpose. We're not them, nor will we ever become them. Okay? We are made in the image of God as humans, his creation as well. We have a different purpose, but he says we're going to be like. So in heaven, who, what happens? There is no marriage or given in marriage in heaven. That's why the Bible talks about in Revelation a thing called the marriage supper of the Lamb. We are the bride of Christ. And in heaven, our hearts will be set toward our groom. I know this sounds weird for me to say as a male, but Jesus is the one we are in covenant relationship with. Marriage is a picture of the eternal covenant relationship between God and his people. So marriage is temporal. Now, will you know that person in heaven? I, I hope so. I, I love my wife. I kind of want to make sure, you know, I, I know her. But we'll be in a different kind of position in the, in the eternal life, okay? So there it is. Question, I had a friend that had taken her own life. Does God forgive suicide? How should she ask for forgiveness, or how could she ask for forgiveness before she did the deed? I probably should tackle this question next week, but if you give me a few minutes, I will address this question. Because I know when, I, when we talk about suicide, first of all, this is a very hard topic to talk about because a lot of people have been impacted by suicide very negatively. Maybe you had a loved one who did that, and you have been mad, you have been hurt, there's been that sense of abandonment and selfishness, and all those things wrapped up into this issue. So I understand talking about this is delicate, but let me lay a foundation first. 
Okay, the first foundation on this topic is this. God values life. Okay, he wrote a command about it. Do not murder. So God values life. And suicide is a form of murder, of self-murder, um, or murder at the hands of somebody who assists the suicide. Okay? So he values life. And I want to speak to this topic right now very carefully because some of you, you have thought about suicide. Some of you, and I'm not, if I look at you right now talking, I'm not looking at you because I think this is where you're at. In fact, I'll just close my eyes and say this. <laughs> some of you have contemplated it. Some of you have attempted it. Okay? Listen. When you hear me explain this, listen carefully. All right? Listen very carefully. The Bible, unfortunately, does not give us clear dot-to-dot answers about suicide. There are examples in Scripture of suicide all the way up to Judas. What we see in Scripture is those who ended their life were not, in a very, uh, were not painted in a very good way in relationship with God at that point. Many of them were in rebellion. There was stuff going on. They weren't in, painted in a happy light of their relationship with God. Just FYI, that doesn't mean anything. I'm just telling you the examples that we see ended in Judas that we see in Scripture, and that's it. It doesn't say, and Judas hung himself and then changed into an angel and flew off into heaven. I mean, there's nothing about what happens after that point. So what we have to do is look at this topic through the lens of of the theology we see in Scripture when it comes to this. All right? So, is suicide the unpardonable sin? And otherwise, is is it the sin God cannot forgive? Let me just remind you, Scripture talks about one sin that's specifically spoken of that is not forgivable, and it is called blaspheming the Holy Spirit, which I don't have time to explain what that means, but it's not suicide. Okay, we'll talk maybe about that topic on a different week, but it's not. So what does that mean? We have to address this question in asking, how does God view sin? How does God view varying sin? Like, how does God view adultery in comparison to murder? How does God view lying in comparison to stealing? Okay? Does he have varying degrees of sin? I believe, looking at Scripture, that sin is an activity that is outside of the will of God. It's a disobedience to God. He does not seem to categorize sin. He just says, if it's outside of here, it is sin. If it's contrary to here, it is sin. So if God doesn't give qualifications to it, the problem is we like to or we need to just for ourselves to make sense of things. So we say, well, lying's not bad. We call it white lying. That's not bad. That's acceptable. But murder, that's really wrong. Anybody who murders is never going to go to heaven. Okay? That's what we want to, we want to try to make a graded scale on this issue of sin. The reality is sin's a terrible thing in any of its varied forms, but there is no measured difference between sin. Now, the reason I want to make this point is make no doubt, suicide is sin. Okay? I'm stating something very clearly. Hope you hear me. Suicide is sin. And if a person who has never accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior commits suicide, The reality is they will spend eternity outside of life with God because they've never made a decision to follow Jesus anyway. So if they died of natural causes because they chose to reject Jesus or chose not to follow him, they would still be in that same qualification as somebody who never made that confession of faith, never believed and received the answer in Jesus Christ. Okay, So now, that brings the next question then. Will a Christian who commits suicide in a moment of hopelessness go to hell? This is the question maybe you're wrestling with because the person you knew was a Christian. And they seemed to love Jesus with all their heart, but in a moment of either mental illness or hopelessness or whatever, they took their own life. And did they make things right before they died is the question that people ask. And the reason they ask this question is because there is a reality that once life ends, it is done. There's no space to ask forgiveness between death and the everlasting life. The Bible says it is destined for man to die once, after that to face judgment. Okay, so there is just, it's now in this world we reconcile this issue of sin and confession. Now, 
I'm del- I, I want to try to build this foundation so nobody misunderstands this point. Okay. So will a Christian who commits suicide go to hell? Somebody who has confessed their faith in Christ Jesus. To answer this question, let me give you some scenarios similar to this. Let's say that I was driving in my car, talking to my wife on the cell phone, hands-free, of course, but in the course of the conversation with her, I told her a lie. And after that lie left my lips, a semi-truck broadsided my car, and the resulted accident was that I died. Where would I spend eternity? Let me give you another example. If you're a guy, let's say, and you're viewing internet pornography, Right on, the, right on the television or on the internet, you're just viewing porn, and in that moment, your heart fails and you die. Now, you're a Christian. In a moment of giving in to the lust of the flesh, you've viewed porn, and now you've died. Where will you spend eternity? So what this really asks when it comes to suicide or any of these issues is if I'm in a status of unconfessed sin, although I'm in relationship with Jesus Christ... Will that final act in my life determine my eternal life? You see what I'm saying? So to answer this issue with suicide, we have to ask, does the final act of a person's life, even when they're in a relationship with God and through mental illness or an absolute sense of hopelessness where they became isolated and pulled away from help and the enemy lied to them and they felt like suicide was the only out, would that believer spend eternity in hell? I think we look at this question, because the Bible doesn't answer it, so I can't, I can't say, thus saith the Lord, but I think we look at this question the same way we would at anybody who dies with unconfessed sin in their life. Now, here's the thing. As Christians, we don't walk a tightrope. There's not this sense of, I lied, and if I die now, I'm going to be a sinner and I'm going to go to hell. There's not a tightrope walk when it comes to our walk with Jesus. We are in a grace-based relationship. And the truth is, there'll be a lot of people who are Christians who will die, and the last thing they may or may not have done had been unconfessed sin. But do I have to confess every single one of my sins in in the realm of grace to enter eternity? And I think, biblically speaking, that makes it kind of a works-based view of our salvation. I'm living in grace. Should I honor him? Absolutely. Does does suicide honor God? Absolutely not. But when we look at this principle of our last act on earth, we have to ask, what would God do with that? Okay? So that's the best way I'm going to answer this particular question when it comes to suicide among a believer. Now, here's what the Bible does say, though. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received from God? You're not your own. In other words, you don't get to determine the numbers of your days. That's not your call. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Friends, I don't believe suicide fulfills this verse. This is not God honoring. I want to honor him with my life. So the bigger questions aren't, if I commit suicide, will I go to heaven? That's not the kind of question we should be asking. Do I want to really gamble with my eternity? I, don't, I cannot speak specifically to what God does with that. Okay? But when I look at this issue of, does my last act determine my eternal destiny? God's going to take care of that within his understanding of grace and forgiveness. If I'm a believer in Jesus, okay, I'm going to let him settle it. But some of you had believing friends who committed suicide, and you're wondering, where are they at? When we apply these principles, can we just for a minute think that God in his grace will do what is just and right, given the varied circumstances around suicide? Now, let me say this. This description is not permission at all to test the grace of God through suicide. And if you're there in your mental space, get help immediately. Because we tend to buy the lie that this is the only solution. I've been with a lot of families standing around their loved one who had ended their life in my role as chaplain. Lots of questions, lots of feelings are rolling around in that particular moment. I get it. This is a hard topic. And if you're there, what we discover is a lot of times they would say, I think my, my husband or whatever, they thought this was the only option. 
It never is. Jesus says that when the pressure comes, when the temptation rises, he makes a way of escape. There is a better way. Don't believe the lie of the enemy. Don't get tunnel visioned on this topic. God chooses life. So let's pray. Lord, thank you that we can bring our questions to your word and look at it. And while you may not specifically address it, there are principles we can glean from your word to look at these very challenging questions. And God, in the midst of all this, we can understand a few things. When it comes to the end of our life, we have a choice with our free will to exercise that we will follow you and dedicate our lives to you to believe that you're the solution to our sin problem, that only through Christ do we find forgiveness and access to the Father in heaven eternally. That's our exercise of our free will. And in choosing to honor you and live for you and dedicate our lives to you, we know our eternity is secure. You've promised eternal life. But there are those who will exercise their free will and they will choose not to follow you. They will choose to play the game. They'll they'll choose to profess one thing and live like the other. And God, you're going to do what is right, but I I don't want to be in that territory. So I pray for each one of us that God would be to set our hearts toward you. And when we have these nagging questions, we'd come to your word. So right now in this moment with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, if you're here and you're saying, Kelly, I, I want to know that really when my life does come to an end, I'm, I'm going to be with Jesus. Maybe you're not sure about that today. Maybe you've been playing the game. You, you know, back when you were five, you went to the altar, but years and years and years and years, you've lived like whatever you wanted to live. Can I tell you that it's best to live all of our hearts toward Jesus and make that commitment of faith to him? And he's got you covered. If you're here today and saying, Kelly, would you just pray with me today? Because I, I want that. I want to know. I want to be sure. Just raise a hand and say, Kelly, pray with me today. Thank you. Anybody else? Pray with me. Thanks. Thank you. Hands going up lots of places. Thank you. Anybody else? I'm looking in the balcony too. Anybody else? Thank you. Lord, thank you for honest hearts. We want to be with you. And you want to be with us. That's the coolest thing ever. So thank you that you've made it possible through Jesus that we would be restored. And there will be a day we will be with you, and that is going to be awesome and glorious and help us to live with that in mind because when our hearts are focused toward you, our bodies are going to follow. So help us. God, for those who have been hurt because of suicide and somebody selfishly taking their own life in the midst of pain or whatever it is, and they're feeling the sting of that, and God, I know that's hard. I just pray a covering of healing right now over their hearts that the enemy could not use this conversation to hurt them. And I pray you give them peace in the midst of their angst. And God, I pray they would rest in your unfailing love and your goodness to resolve the unanswered that we can't deal with right now, but we'll trust you with it. So God, help us as we go through this series to have open hearts and in the process be encouraged to live all out for you. Thank you for hearing our prayers. Thank you for accepting us and giving us that gift of eternal life. In Jesus' name, amen.